VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, April the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the Come On With It edition of Open Line here this morning. Lots to talk about. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue when on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, uh, let's check in on the curling. Why not? So down to Vegas for the Men's World Tr- Curling Championships. Team Guju at the top of the charts at 8-3. and three. They lost to the States, but Rebound and beat Korea last night, 10-2. and two. They've qualified for the playoffs. Looking pretty good. And I don't know if you spent your day cuddled up to the majestic beauty of Augusta National Golf Course, of course, the host and the home of the Masters Golf Tournament. I watched a little bit, but there was obviously a lot on the media's plate. Yesterday, then I see Iceberg Alley's uh, announced their lineup this morning. And I'm not going to go through all the bands, but a reunion for Bucket Truck for the local rock scene. Be familiar with Bucket Truck. One of the members coming all the way from Sweden, another coming from Germany for this particular reunion. So I'm going to go catch that show for sure. All right. Today, 1974, Hammer and Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run, which surpassed Babe Ruth's 39-year-old record. Of course, Aaron finished his illustrious career with 755 home runs, but it was not well received when he outdid the Babe in the home run category. But anywho, that was today in 1974. With a lot of talk about the saber-rattling and nuclear arms and all of what's happening in Ukraine, it was the day in history where the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty was signed in 2010 between President Obama and President Medvedev, and look where we are today. Lots of talk about wind here in the last few days here in the province. This is interesting. Construction was completed on the world's first building that integrated wind turbines, and there was the Bahrain World Trade Center back in 2008. Okay, let's get to it. It's always tricky and interesting and curious trying to cover budgets. The whopping big numbers, and it's no sense going through all the line items to try to have some full comprehensive evaluation or analysis here off the top of the program. We'll get to some of the key features. And, of course, anything in there, and it always takes a little while for the details to emerge to paint a clearer picture about some of the government policies and spends. And then, of course, we all need some time to cozy up to the estimates where really all of the details are housed. And it's a pretty thick volume of government documentation that was given to us yesterday at the media lock-in. Some curious stuff. I know the vast majority of folks out there, there might be some niche needs or wants in your world, but the whole concept of cost of living adjustments and some supports or relief that government can provide. We know inside the five-point plan there was some talk and support for folks on the seniors' benefit and income supplement and disability, and we get that, and the transition from oil to electric, yeah, okay, and subsidies for electric vehicles or hybrids, all right. People were looking squarely at the price to fill up your rig and the price to fill up your oil tank at home. No attention given. No mention of it anywhere. I don't know if we're going to have a chance to speak with the minister today, sometime next week, but we'll try to probe a little deeper as to why those two key areas, which has such a widespread impact, whether it be diesel operating Metrobus or diesel that operates the trucks that bring in our goods, and what we see the impact on the end result on the grocery store shelves and what have you, but no associated uh, pressure relief there. What was attended to, a couple of interesting things, I guess. They've eliminated the sales tax, the retail sales tax, on home insurance but for just one year. 
we're going to see a break from $180 to $90 to re-register your car. So it's going to be for passenger vehicles like trucks. Those taxes are going to be reduced by 50% for one year. They're continuing on the road to $10 a day daycare by next January, some $46 million associated with it. Luckily, thankfully, there is no increase in any taxes or fees this go-around. All right. Some people will be absolutely concerned and think, you know, really anticipated just a little bit of adjustment to provincial sales tax associated with diesel or gasoline and home heating fuels. But it didn't happen. If you want to talk about it, we can do it. One of the big things considered inside the budget yesterday, and apparently this was only uh, told to the leadership of the regional health authorities the night before. And what they've decided to do is to roll all of the four regional health authorities into one health unit. Now, certainly that will do away with some of the top-heavy management numbers. Certainly it will be able to find some efficiencies in things like shipping and receiving and procurement and HR and those types of things. So there's no talk of job losses as of yet, but if we're going to find ever, ever uh, any of these redundancies or efficiencies will be identified, that just sounds like it comes with a job loss. And no one's cheering for anyone to lose their job, but we do know we've got to pay some attention to this. Healthcare the numbers are unbelievable. 38% of the $9.4 billion budget is health care. $3.6 billion we spend on health. We don't get the intended outcomes. There are some attentions given to the social determinants of health, and they're going to expand Munns Nursing School by some 25%, the increase of 25% of seats, some expansion to CNA health-related programs as well. But you, you wonder what we get when we go back to this one health authority. What does it mean for the patient? You know, it's a back-end issue. Okay, it might not affect any of the front-line offerings and the delivery of healthcare, but there are some key questions. What will it mean for where the jobs are? You know, because someone's still going to have to run the health authority, so there will be concern that there's going to be a big concentration, limited representation, more rural parts of the province, especially in Labrador, if they all move to, say, the Avalon Peninsula. And this is not me cheering for all these jobs to be here, because I do understand the need to have leadership, especially in health, close by where you live. But there's no real clear understanding about how this is going to work over the next 18, 20, 24 months as they try to pull it off. And they continue with the transition of the Newfoundland and Labrador English-speaking school district into the government as well. So I have big questions on that, on that regional health authority move. It could be a good thing, but as always, the key details are yet to be understood, so I don't know. But that's one of the big things that comes out of this particular budget. And then you look at the world of oil. A lot of talk about it, right? And there always is. Government has forecasted a price of $86 a barrel at 80 cents of the conversion between the Canadian and American dollar. That's how they've used it. A decade ago, oil contributed 32% of the government's revenue. This year, 10%. This past year, 10%. Production is way down, which is pretty unfortunate when we talk about the soaring price per barrel. And we didn't didn't have the opportunity to cash in on the big prices per barrel because production was so woefully off. There's some 4,100 people directly employed in the oil industry, but of course there's all sorts of offshoots from it. It does generate some 4.3, or, or pardon me, just over $6 billion in economic activity. So oil ain't what she once was, and there is some talk about transition here and a just transition. Again, it does take a little while for some details to be fully fleshed out so that we can have a broader conversation about it, but that's the numbers associated with oil. 
Big year in minerals. Some $6 billion in exports of the various minerals from the province. Good prices for them. So I guess good news there. And there is going to be some opportunity for some tax credits for businesses that move off to some cleaner technologies inside their operations. So there's a lot to this. And once again, going all the way down through all of the big numbers, if you have specific questions, I have a fair bit of information here in front of me. But the cost of living, I think, is going to be one area where people wonder aloud why there wasn't a bit more attention. Even though when government does away with revenue somewhere, it gets it somewhere else. Or we just borrow more. Here's some of the big broad stroke numbers just for context. The expected deficit for 22-23, $351 million. The projected deficit for the year after, 309. But here's where I'm going. And then the year after that, 270. The year after that, 74 million. And by 26-27, they're forecasting an $82 million surplus. That all sounds great. And there's even some talk about balanced budget legislation. The numbers, that looks really encouraging if you're just trusting numbers in black and white on a page in front of me. What we don't have a clear understanding of is exactly how that's achieved. Because if we're going to continue to borrow, and the borrowing is massive again this year, of course it is. Projected borrowing requirement for 22-23 is $2.7 billion. There is a flow-through of federal monies, which I'm not 100% sure what it means, what it is, what it's earmarked for, but it's some $744 million, wholly federally uh, funded monies in this budget. I don't know if that's post-COVID economic recovery monies or whatever the case may be, but that is part of what we're talking about today. But it would be nice to know. Even inside balanced budget legislation, which has some flaws, it would be nice to have somewhere where we could measure, you know, milestones, thresholds that have to be met so that government hits their own targets. They've missed their own economic uh, target this year by about $250 million. You know, we can get lucky when we see a spike in the price of minerals. We can get lucky when we see a a spike in the price of oil, even though production is going to be a key feature in that end result. But let's get some targets. Give us an understanding how we're going to get there so that we can hold you accountable. And on the word of accountability, it would certainly be nice if we could have a look at some of the documents you're sitting on, which will be part of these roadmaps including the Rothschild Report and otherwise. So that's some of the, the highlights inside of the federal budget, and there's a lot more to it. They're building a couple of schools and renovating the school, the school for the deaf for the Francophone students. So anyway, don't want to be too scatterbrained on this. Federal budget as well. Pretty overwhelming information overload yesterday for those who keep a close eye on these types of things, and we do our best. A lot of renewed focus on defense spending. The government says they're going to spend an additional $8 billion over five years. $6.1 billion of it comes in some form of a down payment to NATO in future commitments. It doesn't get us to our NATO agreement of 2% of GDP. And so, uh, actually, we're expecting to speak with the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance, Christopher Freeland, a little later in the program. And just a heads up. We have tried to negotiate a lot of time with her and very unsuccessful in doing so. They're saying they can only give us like six or seven minutes or something. I'll keep her as long as I can. And I don't know how much information I'll be able to get on your behalf from Minister Freeland in that very tight time frame. But they're, they're, that's that. Uh, defense spending up that much. There is a question about a seven-year delay. Like we spoke with Jean Charest yesterday. The conservative government had landed on the F-35, and seven years later we're landed back on the F-35, which is a seven-year delay and a seven-year increase in cost. So we'll talk defense. There are some measures there associated with housing affordability. They've now imposed a ban on foreign ownership of houses in the country for the next two years. A lot of people point to that as the number one concern. 
That might be slightly exaggerated. Even in the supercharged markets of Toronto and Vancouver, foreign ownership only adds up to about 5%. So it's a step in the right direction. They're also talking about a tax-free savings account where individuals can save up to $40,000, tax-free in, tax-free out, so they can save for a down payment. So a couple of good measures there. They're talking about the expansion of dental care, and of course some of that comes with their supply and confidence agreement with the NDP. And it's not all the way where people would like it to be. They're starting with children on the, under the age of 12. It'll move under 18. But there's certainly a lot more to be understood about what's going to happen in that envelope. But you'll hear a lot of pushback saying, this is the big socialist budget and the NDP are really governing the country and all the types of things. That, you know, the predictable rhetoric that we'll see from other sides. Inside the world of dental care, it adds $5.3 billion to the budget over the next five years. And that, of course, is a key feature in demand of the NDP. Also, when they talk about uh, housing affordability, the negotiations on the Canada housing benefit, it's a one-time increase that's coming. It's going to cost $475 million this year. So we're not actually talking about huge impact based on the supply and confidence arrangement between the Liberals and the NDP at this moment in time. They're also talking about, you know, understanding that the spending that's been entertained over the last couple of years is completely unsustainable. Even though we're in manageable territory with our AAA credit rating and our net debt to GDP numbers, which is the key worldwide indicator of the ability to borrow and to service debt. But they've got a roadmap apparently as well about reducing deficits a long, long way to about $8.4 billion in 2027, which is still a whopping big number. But again, you know, there's going to be all sorts of academic, I was going to say babble, but that's not fair, academic references to uh, supply side or modern day supply side economics and all this stuff. But anyway, if you're on any side of the political spectrum and you'd like to talk about this, we can do exactly that. There are some attention given both the province, uh, provincial and federal budget about critical minerals, carbon capture and storage, the so-called just transition, which is always a tricky conversation because what it means to me means something different to Dave and something different to the province and something, something different to the feds, but there is an awful lot obviously inside the world of the federal budget. And, you know, we'll talk about health care transfer dollars and no real understanding where that's going to go in the future. All the provinces, uh, to a man and woman, are asking for more and more security on that front. You know, what it means for curbing inflationary pressures, they'll say that there's a lot in there for it, but it's also very difficult to figure out if, if and when some of these things are going to actually work. Uh, how are we doing on the telephone, David? Okay, what else did I want to talk about here this morning? No, that's about it, I guess, for now. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Let's get a tune going before we come back and take your calls here on this beautiful Friday. Today, 1982, Toto released their landmark album, Toto 4, on Columbia Records. The number one track off of that uh, very cool album, in my estimation, is Rosanna. All right, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number six. Say good morning to former NDP MHA and NDP member of Parliament, Jack Harris. Good morning, Jack. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, information over the last uh, day, federally and provincially, on the budget. But one thing which uh, excites me very much is the commitment in the federal budget of $5.3 billion over the next three years and then $1.7 billion per year after that to fund a, a dental care program that uh, is a very near and dear to my heart. And I think uh, it's a real game changer for uh, 
hundreds of thousands of people in this province and millions across the country who did not and do not have access to proper dental care. I'm very, very happy to see that happen and amazed that it could be done uh, less than a year after uh, only 32 people in the House of Commons voted in favour of it. So that's a a real big day for uh, a lot of people, and I think for a long time to come, it's going to make uh, a big difference in people's lives. Yeah, they're starting with coverage for children under the age of 12 and then moving off to 18, and then the future beyond that, I'm not really sure. But the same questions will be asked all the time. You know, people simply see the, these uh, plans as a spend, and someone has to pay for it. But, of course, we know your overall dental health goes to your overall well-being and some of the associations with uh, uh, cardiac issues and others. This, There is a savings on the other end when we we keep people healthier, we keep them out of hospitals and out of emergency rooms and the like. I think so. I, I mean, it, this is not something that's uh, a spending, pure spending item. Uh, and even if it was, it's a worthwhile spending item given the uh, given the, the, the total uh, consequences of uh, poor oral health and, and the unfairness of it in a system where, you know, we have a, a, a very, are very proud of our healthcare system despite its flaws uh, because it's extremely important that people have access to healthcare without costing them an arm, an arm and a leg. I say that uh, uh, jokingly, obviously, uh, uh, where we're talking about money. And, and I think uh, dental care is part of that. But you're right. It will, uh, in fact, uh, probably save as much money as it costs uh, in the long run in terms of uh, people having a, a better opportunity, uh, people having a less cost in the, the health care system for uh, the consequences of poor uh, dental care or dental health and, and all of that. But I think that the, the key here is the human aspect of this. Uh, I'm going back to the response that we got uh, during the election campaigns and elsewhere of, of people's concern about their lack of access to uh, dental care and what it meant to them in terms of their lives and their health and their future and their uh, sense of well-being and everything else. So I think it's a, a big day. I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, the fact that we've got, it's not implemented immediately, there's lots of things to be concerned about uh, over the next couple of years. But uh, the three-year commitment uh, in a situation where uh, uh, it's going to take some time to implement, as you point out, the first year this year, uh, it'll be related to children under 12 uh, across the country. Country. Uh, next year, eight under 18s and seniors, and the year after that, the full uh, the full program will be put into place. It takes time to implement these things. It involves, obviously involves co cooperation and coordination across the country, where there are uh, different uh, systems in place, and uh, that's going to take some time. And uh, it's going to require too a lot of advocates on the ground across in each province to make sure that uh, the system is put in place that uh, that reaches everybody, which is that which is the intention. But to me, it's a, uh, a fantastic result and something that I think uh, matters to will matter to people uh, for uh, a long time to come. It will, be, will become a, uh, a, a, another feature of our healthcare system, which uh, uh, is a greater equality and ensuring that everybody, regardless of, of ability to pay, are able to get access to dental care, which is something that's always been important to me uh, to, because I know the consequences that it has for people and I think uh, everybody in this province is well aware that that's an important uh, factor in uh, the distinction between people who 
have the ability to get dental care and people who don't. I think it's a big, uh, it's a big deal, uh, and I think it's worth celebrating. Um, health care is complicated. We pat ourselves on the back for having universal health care, and, you know, it's an important feature of Canadian life, uh, economically, politically, and otherwise. And we need provincial jurisdiction to remain sacrosanct, even though we rely on Canada Health Transfer and what have you. But it's a bit of a dog's breakfast out there. You know, whether it be you can't even have the same qualifications and accreditation approved for doctors across the board, right across the country, all the paper warfare that has to be entertained and the costs associated with those types of things. You know, it's nice to have a federal plan on dental care, and it's long overdue that we have a better conversation about universal pharmacare in this country. I mean, Dr. Eric Hoskins and his group, when they presented their papers, there's been time after time after time we show what the ultimate benefit is and the cost savings associated with it. But I think we need some more federally-led conversation on it. It's one thing to have a health accord work be piece of work being done here, but when we don't have the same investment and outcomes and uh, concerns and issues and conflicts from province to province to territory to territory, there's something missing here. And I don't know if, I don't think we need the federal government to be the lead group here, but to lead a national conversation, I think, is long overdue. Well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, the health care is, is not... not uh, said to be a provincial responsibility, but that's not actually the case constitutionally. It, you know, the Constitution says that ho- province is responsible for uh, hospitals uh, and uh, institutional care, uh, but so it's a divided responsibility, and there's plenty of room for leadership at the federal level. Uh, you know, we, we have, by convention, we have the implementation of, of and the operation of health care as a provincial responsibility, but uh, constitutionally there is a, a, an important national role and uh, th- in this case, obviously, uh, the lead being taken uh, on the dental care uh, front, uh, which the federal government did take on the uh, Medicare overall back in the sure. 60s when it took place. So without the federal government playing that role, we wouldn't have either of those systems. So it is important, you're right, and there's a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of complications in the delivery of health care across the country. Uh, and uh, the more we were able to streamline them, the health court discussions are very important, and the federal government uh, should be playing a very strong role in that. And we hope that, you know, some of the things, as you pointed out at the beginning, with the amount of money being spent on health care in this province alone is, uh, is tremendous, uh, except that the, the problem is the outcomes at the other end are not uh, what we want. And that has to, has to change, and that has to be, uh, you know, a lot of work has to be done for sure. But uh, but by the same token, I think uh, it's still worth uh, looking at the the bright side today and say, hey, we've got a step taken that's extremely important and I think will matter a lot to people in this province where, you know, families under with incomes, a family income under $70,000 covers almost half of the population. So uh, not all of them, some of them obviously do have access to work-related dental plans, and many of them don't. And I think uh, uh, this is a a big step forward, and I'm uh, very, uh, very happy to see it happen. That's where it gets complicated, because we don't want the federal government to cover what your employer is already covering. That's where it becomes a detail-oriented policy that really needs to be fleshed out in full, because employers should be on the hook for some of these coverages, whether it be for health and or dental. I guess it should be called the same thing. But, Jack, appreciate your input and your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Jack Harris from MHA and MP. Let's go to line number one. Winston, you're on the air. Good morning. Morning to you. 
Good morning, Penny. Uh, your pre-app was awesome. Uh, you touched on a lot of things. I can ask you one question, though. Okay. VOCM. Yeah. What are these? VOCM what? Pardon me? VOCM. What, what do it mean? Well, people always make reference to the voice of the common man, yeah? Yeah, you got it. I didn't think you knew that. Oh, yeah, that's, that's as old yeah, as the hills. Come on, man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Teddy, that's not what I called you about. Okay. I called you about uh, in the budget yesterday. Now, I listen to the provincial budgets. Uh, I try to keep my ears open, and I see it was 10% uh, on the GST. But I never heard a word in the federal budget, did you? Well, I'll be bluntly honest with you. I did as much as I could to absorb information both provincially and federally. There are, you know, it depends what you mean by an actual senior-specific issue. There wasn't, you know, there's been a long pledge for increase in CPP and the like, yeah. but no, nothing that I can say, well, this is absolutely no, for I seniors. There was money. Well, some, petty, some of it's already been at announced. Petty, at Petty, I'm, i got to be honest with you, I'm frustrated. Uh, like, you know, like the cost of living, I, I, I just can't afford it. I hear you. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. Uh, you go to the grocery store today, like, uh, let's say a carton of milk. Like, last year, we're saying, oh, you know, or 86 or, or $2. And it was almost like $5. And it's just milk. Uh, I tell you, I can't do it. I'm not hearing nothing. I don't, I don't see no help here. The most recent announcements here provincially regarding seniors, you've all heard them. So the seniors, those yeah. receiving a senior's benefit get an increase up to $1,444, and the, those on the income supplement receiving uh, up to $1,000 a year extra. Then there's about $140 million for housing programs associated directly with seniors, monies for uh, community transportation specifically for seniors, monies for social inclusion and 50-plus clubs uh, associated with seniors and congr- their congregations. So that's about it. Yeah, yeah. So, Penny, bottom line, nothing. There's nothing for seniors. Not a lot. There are, I mean, there are some, and there's some attention at the federal level, but, you know, when we yeah. talk about poverty, that can include all age demographics. So there are some discussions and money set aside to deal with poverty reduction, even though we don't have a formalized strategy like we once did, and that would include seniors as well. But those are the monies, as I understand it, that I just spoke to. Well, Penny, boy, as I was going to say, that uh, as a senior living alone, trying to keep up, like you got light bills, phone bills, cable bills, yep. council bills, and every bill, and the bit of money I'm getting. I got a couple hundred dollars now to live on a month. I can't do it, Patty. Look, I, uh, look, I, I can't afford to, uh, to live and Patty, you there? I'm listening. Hello? I'm listening. Yes, go right ahead. I was going to say, uh, you know uh, another thing in my mind? COVID. Okay. There's more senior citizens dying now than ever. What's the government trying to, with this 
Kof is on the go trying to kill all the seniors? No, I don't imagine anyone. We're dying day by day, and we have no hope. We got no hope. I don't think there's anybody making a, a purposeful move. I know, I know, I know, I know it's saying no. I, I, I don't, I don't think that. But that's what it seems like. Well, certainly people. Uh, as they age are more susceptible to these types of uh, viruses and of course the complications with their own health but you know it's not gone away i think everyone's quite painfully aware that as much as people are tired of the pandemic it's still right there in front of us every single day we'll hear an update on the government's hub and hopefully we'll see some stabilized uh, stabilized numbers with hospitalizations and deaths because they're going in the wrong direction they're creeping up every time they update it winston i appreciate your time sir i wish you nothing but the best Okay, Katie, my son. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Rick, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. I'm following about the provincial budget that was announced yesterday, Ken. First, can you take us off speakerphone so we can hear you a little clearer, please? Okay, Patty. Okay, great. Go right ahead. Uh, what a kick in the teeth for the people of Newfoundland yesterday when Siobhan Cody came out with that budget. Why? What uh, constitutes a kick in the teeth? Well, Patty, a lot of people, uh, probably 50% of the population, don't have house insurance because they can't afford it. That's no good to them. Uh, a lot of people that's making minimum wage uh, are traveling back and forth to work. I know some people here over on the West Coast that travel 30, 40 miles a day just to get to work, and one person was telling me it's costing $30 a day in gas, so you take five days' work, that's $150 of your paycheck a week, you know, Patty? So things like this, you know, like, uh, don't make sense to me. You know, like, uh, all our food is trucked in across the Gulf, most of it. Uh, some of it is in by ship and containers, but, Patty, uh, when the fuel goes up, diesel, our groceries go up. And... Some people are on limited incomes, like the elder people, and certain people on social services. They got just so much money, they're just barely making it. Patty, probably $250 every two weeks to live on. This is absolutely, like I said, a kick in the teeth to the people in Newfoundland. What would you have wanted them to do specifically? Patty, uh, they should have, uh, at least they should have brought down the price of fuel, you know, and diesel especially, because like you and myself, when we go to the grocery store, you notice the prices going up every week, and every time we turn around, it's five and ten cents, sometimes twenty cents a liter on fuel. You know, this is absolutely outrageous. And like Patty, years ago, like I'm, I'm getting up in age now too. Years ago, when Hibernia came online, everybody talked about around the flat. Oh, we're going to finally get a break on our gas. Well, Patty, after seeing Terra Nova, or after seeing the Sea Rose out there, the Terra Nova, other ships out there pumping all the oil off our shores of Newfoundland, not a bit of it being uh, processed here in Newfoundland. And what do we get of it? Nothing. Not a thing. And it's like people say, oh, Muskrat Falls are going to get cheaper power. No, no. We're I don't think anybody's ever said that about Muskrat Falls, but the if we don't refine it onshore, then it's irrelevant that we pump oil offshore because that won't have anything to do with the price of gas as, as we go to the pumps to fill up. Um, 
the whole cost of living concern, like even if you talk about the price of diesel, if government eliminated all the taxes on it, we'd still be paying too much for diesel. And as it pertains or correlates with the price of groceries, I think we're being a little bit bamboozled here, to be honest with you. Because, yes, there's an associated a, a cost passed along from trucking companies at the end result for the customer. I get it. We'll have companies talk about inflation and global supply chains and all those types of interruptions. But when do you boil it back to uh, the quiet moments in the heads of the CEOs, people setting prices? They're making off like bandits. We are absolutely fueling a conversation which allows companies to jack up their prices while we're being led to believe it's because of all the interruptions in supply. It's all about inflation. It's all about those things. When, in fact, the biggest part, the, uh, the biggest component in that price tag is the amount of profit, uh, the amount of greed associated with the retailer. And that's not just groceries. So they can blame it on everything they want. But they are doing great. Oh, awesome, Patty. What they're doing for, for their investors, uh, like I said, it's tax on top of tax, Patty. It's time for the government to give people a, a bit of relief, you know. And okay. uh, it's absolutely ridiculous, you know. Like, uh, like Dr. John Hagee, I'll just change the conversation, just a little twist for a second. Quickly, yep. Uh, uh, he said there a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, when uh, Dr. French was on from Cornwall, and Dr. French was proposing uh, to go and spend a million dollars to help the people with the healthcare system to get their eyesight back, like a lot of cataract surgery. And uh, Dr. Hagee said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Well, listen, uh, the federal government just, uh, just gave us $27 million. Why can't the provincial government take a million dollars of that and clear up the backlog of eye surgeries here on the West Coast. And they can't say they don't have the money because this money is put forward for surgeries. Take the million dollars, clear up the backlog, and that's one problem solved. And yep. like I said before, Patty, we got all these people in government, and they're all well-educated, but Patty, a lot of them have got no more sense than God give the monkey. Yeah, we've got some, we have some capacity issues with trying to deal with some of the surgical backlogs because we're not going to build operating theaters. We don't even have the staff to put in these new operating theaters, even if that was such a thing. So I think it becomes a lot more complicated than simply $27 million, personally. But, Rick, yeah, I but appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, Thanks for okay, the call. Patty, but like I said, at least you should have gave somebody, uh, some people here in Newfoundland a break on the fuel costs, you know, because uh, New Brunswick yesterday morning just took $0.10 cents a liter off of their gas. That's right. You know, yep. so this, this, you know, oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm just puzzled. I appreciate the call this morning, and I understand the concern. Okay, Betty, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Rick. Take okay, care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Right, let's go to line number three. Lorraine, you're on the air. Yes, Betty. I, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, I had a letter from Eastern Health about the cyber attack. Yep. Now, they, they want a lot of information, like your social insurance number. I was wondering, should I give that out? Always a good question when we're talking about our personal privacy. So they'll give you a number on that lettered call, right? Yes. Okay. They're, so are they just telling you they want you to set up your credit monitoring with Equifax? Yes. Okay. Those companies... They are bound by all sorts of uh, privacy protection laws about banking information and social insurance numbers and the like. So I'd call the number and have that conversation with Eastern Health and speak to somebody about what they think you should do. I think you're going to be okay because they have your information anyway. They're just okay. trying to verify that it's you. So, yeah, I mean, they, they've already got that, that piece of information. Then if you've ever paid for anything like crutches or anything at Eastern Health, they have some of your banking information. Every time that you uh, deal with them, you've got to provide your patient ID card and your MC. And they know who you are. So I'd, I'd give a call to them, the number that's on that letter, just so you can get some additional comfort. 
Yes, because, I mean, like you hear people say, don't ever give out your social insurance number. Absolutely. That's one of the key pieces to provide to protecting your identity. And this is what they want. Yeah. Yeah. They're just trying to verify to you. That's basically all that's so going on. So you think on. it's safe enough? Yeah, but I would call them. I would call and speak with someone on the other end and have them explain to you exactly what, how they use that social insurance number and how they protect it from anybody else. Because they're the folks who can give you the straight details on that front. I think you're going to be okay, but I would absolutely ask them all those questions about why do you need it, how you're going to use it, how you're going to protect it. Yeah. Okay, Patty, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Take good care. Yeah, you do. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time, obviously, to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number seven. Say good morning to Dan Rubin from the Food Producers Forum. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Good to talk to you. Nice to have you on. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear Jack Harris on air, one of my favorite people, talking about health and dental. And uh, I'm here this morning. I've called in to talk about another aspect of health that I couldn't help but notice was not really mentioned in the provincial budget speech, and that's food. Uh, We've talked about local food production before. I was delighted to find out that uh, you come from a family of carrot growers. That was cool. But uh, as we all know, should be aware, uh, we're in a food crisis now in this food, in this province. And it has to do with the lack of uh, local production. It has to do with the way food's being distributed. And it has to do with who can afford the food. So in the first week of May, May 5th, 6th, and 7th, Food Producers Forum, uh, along with the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial and CBC, will be hosting a conference with 30 speakers called uh, called Regeneration Soil Food Community, where we're going to take a real hard look at that whole situation and come up with some real solutions, we hope. The issue, I mean, we talk about our reliance on some 90% of the goods we consume to be brought in by either Ocean X or Marine Atlantic. And I've thrown this out there that if we're talking about food security, it comes in many different fashions. Maybe it's about price and accessibility. So if we sprinkled government investment and private sector interest across the province in the form of really the technology is there for year-round growing and greenhouses, that if we did more and focused more on that front, and there's some work being done there, if that was the key focus of the government... I think we would improve things leaps and bounds in short order. Well, in actual fact, what we've been finding out in our research, and we're about ready to, f- to launch a province-wide survey, is that the food is being grown here more and more, but it's being grown at the community level. It's being grown small and medium scale. We're hearing from new family farms right across the province, in Port Blanford, in Gambo, on Fogo Island. And uh, the people who are growing the food at the community level are largely unrecognized by government. There are some supports for large-scale farmers. There's a great program of starting plants in a greenhouse that are distributed to vegetable farmers across the province. But uh, where change is really starting to happen is at the grassroots level. And we're now, Food Producers Forum now, is working with six communities, the Codroy Valley, Norris Point, Carbonier, Gamble, Port Blanford, and uh, helping people in those communities produce food and build greenhouses. So change is happening, but we're kind of, 
I hate to say it because there's some really good programs and really good people in fishery, forestry, and agriculture, but we're kind of waiting for the government to catch up. And that's, again, what this conference is about. And we're going to have food producers, you know, farmers and soil scientists and food distributors and people from the food banks as our speakers. But this is going to be a public engagement exercise where everybody gets to have a voice, much like your phone-in is. So you obviously have a lot of thoughts on the matter. So increased government involvement is part of this, not everything, because it's not always up to government. If you had your druthers, one or two things that government could do immediately to make this a much more easy easy issue to deal with community level and regional level otherwise? Well, one of the issues that's been pointed out by, for example, a farmer in Labrador who will be one of the presenters at our conference is that farmers here, in contrast to every other province in Canada, are not allowed to purchase in their own land. They're allowed to lease crown land long term. But that means that all of the infrastructure and investments you make into that property never really belong to you. And that makes it hard for any business or farmer as an entrepreneur to operate. If you invest but you don't own what you invest in, that would be one change. That would be significant. But also, uh, in general, there is a need for recognition and support for small-scale agriculture. When farmers, even like uh, Lori and Boyd, who are Grossmorn Farm and Market in Norris Point, who have a 14-acre crown land lease that they're expanding, uh, producing beautiful organic vegetables that people are driving sometimes two hours from Corner Brook or down from St. Anthony to purchase in the summer, filling more than 50 CSA distribution boxes a week, they find it very difficult to get support for what they're doing because they're not recognized as a large-scale farm. So in general, better support for and recognition of small-scale production. Uh, We are going to launch a survey of community food production uh, as soon as we have the permission for Memorial to do the research. And when we do that, we expect to be able to document between three and four million pounds of food per year being produced at the community level by growers, foragers, fishers, hunters, all of us together. And I think the exciting thing about this for me and the exciting thing looking forward to the conference is that we get to actually bring that out in the open where people can see it and support it and participate in it. And, you know, it's something for people here to be really proud of is that we have a tradition of providing our own food. And there's a big movement in homesteading and home food production and community gardens. And uh, and you mentioned organics, or, you know, you'd have yeah. the Mark Wilsons of the world. Uh, Definitely. Jason Bull at Eastport Organics. Uh, yes. I know he's got a great operation going out there. We've got to make sure that the, the, the playing field is level and that we don't create such a competitive environment for government monies that all of a sudden we have some winners and losers being chosen. So that's always the way, especially when we're advancing a cause, like we are with food security on all the levels that you mentioned. Dan, I'll give you the last word before I take another call. 
Thank you so much for the time, Patty. It's always great to talk to you. So for everybody who's listening, and we've gotten a great response in the past when people hear about uh, what we're doing on VOCM, huge surge in online presence when that happens. You can go to food. You can go to Food Producers Forum, F-O-R-U-M dot com, and you'll see the link right there to the Regeneration Conference. Or you can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at Food Producers Forum. Thanks for the time, Patty. Happy to have you on, Dan. Good luck. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Dan Rubin from the Food Producers Forum. Let's go to line number eight. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Uh, Patty, I'm just, well, I'm on the West Coast. Or actually, I'll more, uh, just cease for the vast. Okay. Uh, for the lack of uh, specialists we have on, uh, on this part of the coast, Tuesday of this week, I had an appointment to see a dermatologist in St. John's. I had to drive nine and a half hours down for a 10-minute appointment and then nine and a half hours back. <laughs> the furthest thing from convenient. I read yeah. a story the other day that uh, in the next couple of weeks, the entire pro- portion of the Bay, uh, uh, Bay St. George won't have a doctor at all. So the, the issue regarding family doctors and specialists and wait times is aggravating to say the very least. And well, I hear about like, it every you know, day. Like I said, like, you know, I had to drive down there. Like my appointment was Monday morning, or Tuesday morning. So I had to drive down Monday yeah. uh, with a price of gas and you know, mail down and the mail back. And then I had to you know, get a, a place to stay for the night. And you're looking at over 400 bucks. Just go down for a 10-minute meeting for a doctor. It's, you know, I don't know how the changes are going to look in the future when we see some of the health accord stuff done and primary care teams. I don't think it's going to reduce the concerns and the travel time and access uh, or wait times to specialists necessarily. So th- I hear an awful lot of pushback on this front all the time. When I, when he, when he, I was into his office, and when he came in, he said to me, he said, oh, so you came all the way from Port of I said, no, so I came all the way from Alamort, I said, which is another 16 kilometers. He said, well, he said, this is pretty expensive for you. He said, you was pr- probably cheaper off. He said, go see my brother in Nova Scotia. <laughs> yeah, I've been to Alamort playing baseball when I was a kid. Um, okay. So the, uh, Dave just uh, said in my ear, and there's a lot of attention in the provincial budget, too, about expansion for virtual care. Is that something that you could have done with this? specialist or something that you have any comfort with or access to uh, I don't know I don't know because I think that's going to happen more and more and that could be a help in more rural parts of the province especially when we expand high-speed reliable internet the people will be in their own home dealing with their doctor if there's a need for face-to-face intervention I guess that'll have to happen but we're going to see more folks getting their health care through their computer screen uh, I'm not sure, because my problem was I got circulation in my problems in my foot, and, and like my foot is turning black. And now it's in my leg, and, that, and like he told me there's probably a blockage in my leg, and that's why the flow of blood to my foot is slow. And so what happened? You got a, a prescription for blood thinners or something? No, nothing. Nothing. See, so that's, that's something where maybe you could have had that exact same conversation sitting at your own kitchen table with that doctor and save yourself the 400 bucks and all the travel that you had to endure. Exactly. I said, and, well, I was in two specialists before in Cornerbrook, and he put me on pills for it. Okay. Like, that was, you know, seven years ago, and nothing has changed. Actually, it's getting worse. And, like, he told me now, the one I was in, see Dr. Olson, like, he wants to see me, he wants me to come down now, whenever it is, to see another specialist. 
I'd inquire about how you might be able to do that uh, over the computer. Because if you're going to, for instance, just show up and show them your foot and leave with nothing, no additional re referral or no prescription or no consequence, then maybe that's something you can do from home as they try to figure out how to help you out. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I'd have that. I'd have that conversation with the doctor yeah. if I was you. Well, like I said, like, you know, as ridiculous when you got to travel that far, that far because of Native One on the west <coughs> on the west coast, we're in Central Newfoundland, right? Totally understand. You know, and, and uh, I don't know if the government can do anything about it or any, you know, but it's you know, it's not cheap when you got to do that. No, it's not. Now, there has been a position established, uh, a deputy minister, that sole role is recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals, including specialists, of course. Uh, Greg, off to the news we go. I wish you well with your health, and I appreciate your time this morning. Okay, thanks, Pat. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, you know the deal. Lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Jeff LeDrew. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? Good, good. I wanted to uh, just give you a bit of perspective. I know you're talking about inflation and just uh, we're obviously a local manufacturer here. We deal with the big retailers. So uh, it'd probably be worth just to tell everybody kind of just a perspective from when you're from a manufacturer perspective. So we were cruising into COVID and we haven't changed our price in probably 10 or 12 years. We were originally like on the price of a compound of coffee, uh, like the lowest in the market for the values for what we had, right? So anyway, cruising into the COVID we had uh, to about June or almost into May of last year, you've seen a sharp increase in the commodity. And then so we obviously recognize this, and then we tried to go back to the big retailers in order to do a price increase. So from their side, it takes 12 to 16 weeks to implement a price increase, and that's after they, you communicate why you need the price increase and why to go through. So that's what you're seeing probably right now with inflation for a lot of people is just the process of how from a manufacturer to the end, to the end consumer and the, and the structure, how long it takes. So coffee went from uh, a pretty decent price, and we're fair trade, so we guaranteed a, a, a fair price for the for, you know fair wage for a fair product. But anyway, the commodity rose to its highest as been in 25 years in and around December. And some of those price increases that we asked for in, in May didn't actually take effect till uh, January of this year. So a really long time period and stretched out for how long it's actually seen to the consumer effect. So now, but, you know, I mean, obviously our margins uh, are different across the retailers, but as you see that price increase come up from our manufacturer, you're seeing that obviously just blow, you know, 30% of of one uh, bigger number is a bigger number. So um, from our perspective, like it is, ex uh, you know, with the price of gas and obviously uh, trucking to get it here and truck it back off the island. It's uh, it's a pretty tough racket. So, <laughs> I mean, we we were basically wrapping dollar bills around it in September through December, and we had to do another price increase and still try to get that through in time in order to keep up. Uh, as you know, and some of our manufacturers they don't even give you any time. It's just basically here's the price and there it is, right? So, yeah. well, not every retail uh, outlet is created equal. You know, the small guy versus the large corporations, and you know whether it be the price of food, the complications with the price of diesel, and the soaring price of fertilizer. So there's a lot of things and interruptions of global supply chains. They're all real. But there's yeah. also companies out there that are absolutely taking advantage of the political conversation, and their profitability has not shrunk one iota, but yet the prices yeah. continue to soar. So I know there's a lot of contributing factors, but sometimes we can indeed boil it back down to the level of profit. For these big companies, they report their profits. We can see them. They can't hide, but they will yeah. hide behind the political conversation regarding inflation, for instance. 
Yeah, and it's, and it's tough for me. For me. I, I I can't join, really join into that conversation because we're, you know, they're the, the mouth of feed us to some degree to be able to get those listings. I mean, we're still sure. only listed in Atlantic Canada in uh, in the major big box store. We're only uh, barely in Ontario East in, in one of the major retailers and then sprinkle about, you know, online through the, uh, through the online retailers. And, you know, there is different, different margins for different, different, uh, different retailers. And I think, you know, the, the onslaught of Amazon and, uh, they're, uh, you know, entry into grocery. You're seeing, you know, some of that competitiveness come back through just, you know, the market itself trying to capture market share for for online retailers and the like, right? Oh, 100%. You can't, get, the, you can't get lettuce. You can't get lettuce through with Amazon. <laughs> no, that's right. And, you know, the targets and the Walmarts of the world, their explosion, uh, upward spike online is very, very real. And it's going to take a long time for that to come back because when people develop a shopping habit, it's hard to break it. And we know what that means on the ground, especially for the smaller local, small and medium-sized business. I appreciate you making time, Jeff. Anything else quick? No, not really. I, like I said, there's no uh, no end in sight in the way of uh, relief on commodities and stuff like that. So uh, I don't know. I think we're probably, unfortunately, six months out before you see some some pricing pressure off uh, the consumer. So thanks for taking the time. I just want to throw it out there. And like I said, uh, we're the lo- you know we're, we roast coffee locally and we're like a local fish plant. So. We appreciate the opportunity to throw it to your listeners. And it's a fine cup of joe. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thanks, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the Liberal member for University of Rosedale. She's the Deputy Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance. That's Christia Freeland. Good morning, Minister Freeland. You're on the air. Uh, Patty, it's great to be with you. Happy Good to morning. have you. A lot of information for those of us in the media to absorb, especially since we had a provincial budget yesterday as well as the federal budget. But let's start with defense. You know, there's been a renewed focus on defense spending given what we see, the atrocities in Ukraine. So the government has pledged $8 billion over the next five years. We were at 1.2, uh, pardon me, 1.4% of GDP. Where does this get us? Because our NATO allies are really clamoring for us to hit two. So this gets us up to 15 and I want to kind of emphasize, it's a lot of money. $8 billion is really significant. And we had another couple of elements there. One is we said to the Department of Defense, we want you to urgently review our defense plan. Because I agree with you, Patty. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has changed the world. And it does mean that Canada needs to focus more on our own defense and on the role we play in supporting our allies. But, you know, I believe that when we put money in the budget, it's not my money. It's not the federal government's money. It is your money and the money of each one of your listeners. And so I don't want to put a lot of money anywhere without a plan on how we will spend it. So what is the plan? The only other thing, can, can I say one more thing? Sure you can, I apologize. Um, sorry, there's just, you're right, there's a lot there. And, and the one other point I would like to make, because I think this is really important, is we also said, okay, what is the biggest threat Canada and the world face right now? And you said it yourself, Patty. It is Vladimir Putin and his barbaric invasion of Ukraine. What can we do about that threat? Well, we're lucky because the Ukrainian people are putting up an amazing resistance. But what they're telling us and the world is we are prepared to keep on fighting. We are prepared to keep on dying. But we're running out of weapons. And so 
in the budget, we said, here's $500 million. We're saying to our Minister of Defense, to our Minister of Procurement, go out, buy some weapons for Ukraine. The Ukrainians have given Canada a shopping list, and now it's time for us to help them help us all. Can you help me understand what the the concept of the $6.1 billion as a down payment on future commitments to continental defense, what does that mean in the envelope of $8, of $8 billion? Um, well, in our defense commitments, there are a couple of elements. And one, the continental defense, that is NORAD. That is defense of the continent where Canada is situated. It's only part of defense because we also are a NATO ally and we have some brave Canadian women and men in uniform right now in Latvia where Canada leads the enhanced forward presence mission. Um, But, you know, we need to take care of our own home too and we need to spend some money to do it. Let's talk about housing affordability because I know we're going to be pressed for time here. A couple of measures have been taken. The creation of a tax-free savings account where allows me to save up to $40,000. That's okay if I have money to contribute. There's also a ban on foreign ownership for a couple of years. But if we look at the supercharged markets of Toronto and Vancouver, reports are pretty clear that foreign ownership only makes up about 5%. So how does this really deal with the issue of housing affordability? House prices are up 18, 18% year over year. So what I like about how you put that question, Patty, is you mentioned a number of different measures. And I think it's really important when it comes to housing to be honest, to be honest with Canadians and to say, this is a really complicated problem. It's a really big problem. And no single measure is going to do it. No single measure is going to meet the needs of all Canadians. And that's why it's a package of things. Some of them are to help people who, yes, are middle class, who are able to save money, but for whom that dream of home ownership, which is such an important part of life for so many Canadians, is now becoming out of reach. And I think those people, often they are young Canadians, they deserve a little bit of a helping hand. And that is what the tax-free home savings account for first-time buyers will do. But we have to do lots of other things too. One of them may be the principal idea in this package is we have to increase housing supply. Canada is really lucky because we have a growing population. In fact, Canada has the fastest growing population in the G7. But we are not building enough houses to keep up with that, and we need to change that. Inside of that comment, though, if you hear from Jamie Gollenbeck, he's the head of tax and estate planning at CIBC, he says this plan could be huge, but if you don't have the money, the plan does nothing for you. So we can build homes, but for the folks where it's unattainable today and this plan doesn't do anything for them, what's next steps? Well, as I said, the housing plan is designed to meet the needs of lots of different groups of Canadians. So one group is those people who, yeah, they can really aspire to own a home. They have a job. They're able to save money. But we want to make it that little bit easier because it's become too hard for them. But there are also elements in this plan for the very most vulnerable Canadians. Maybe the thing that will be most interesting for your listeners is a $500 top-up to the Canada Housing Benefit. And that is money which is going to go now to the people who need it the most, who are struggling with affordability. 
there's a lot in here when it comes to the supply and confidence arrangement between your party and the NDP. You're going to hear the same things that I hear, the turbocharged inflation and the socialist agenda and what have you. But when we know that inflation is at a 30-year high at 5.7%, what exactly in this budget is uh, is intended to deal with that issue? I know it's not a flip the switch and all of a sudden inflationary pressures are removed and the Bank of Canada and their monetary policy plays a role, but what in this budget can you point to to help control inflation? Okay, well, since you're asking about economic numbers, let me share news that is just out, which is such good news for Canada and Canadians. We have the jobs numbers out this morning. We added 73,000 new jobs. Our unemployment rate in Canada is now down to 5.3%. That is the lowest number we have ever recorded since comparable data first became available in 1976. So that is huge. I think when it comes to affordability, nothing matters more for most Canadians than actually having a job. That's where affordability starts. But I agree with you that inflation is a challenge. Inflation is elevated. I also agree with you, the Bank of Canada has monetary policy tools, and we should all have confidence that the Bank of Canada has the tools to do its job and will do its job. How can I contribute? I contributed to that with a fiscally responsible budget, with a budget where debt and deficits are consistently falling, actually the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7 and the lowest deficit in the G7. But let's stick with inflation for a bit, because I know cost of living is not solely inflationary pressures. You know, there's lots of contributing factors. But there needs to be some attention. Like, even if we add all those jobs, which is excellent news, and we grew 6.5% GDP in the last quarter, and we've recovered 112% of the jobs uh, pre-pandemic numbers. But still, having a job is great, but it still doesn't mean that it's going to be affordable to walk into the grocery store or go to the hardware store or to fill up my car, diesel or gasoline. So, once again, inflationary pressures, I, I, and I'll admit, it's not a, an easy, it's a very complicated situation, but we do need some relief on those fronts. I couldn't agree more, Patty, um, both that it's complicated and that we need relief. Um, that top-up to the Canada uh, housing credit, housing credit, or sorry, Canada housing benefit um, of $500 for the most vulnerable Canadians, that will help a lot of people in a meaningful way. If you are struggling to make ends meet, $500 can make a real difference. You also saw in our budget, we're serious about dental care. And something I've heard, you know, when I talk to the most vulnerable Canadians, is they're saying, you know what, it is so hard to pay my bill at the checkout counter at the grocery store. It is so hard to fill up my car or my truck. I'm not sure I can afford to go to the dentist. That is not acceptable in Canada. So that is also going to help us with the affordability challenge. Very last one, because I know you have to run. The plan is for the deficit to be around $8.4 billion in 2027. Where can I find the roadmap to those numbers? Because it would be helpful for, for government to see if they're on the right track. It would be helpful for us in the media and individual taxpayers to hold you to account. So where can I find that roadmap to that number? Page 19 of the budget. 
uh, we all admit freely we absorbed hundreds of billions of dollars worth of spending so that's something we need on this uh, in the province is a real roadmap because we've got ourselves in a fiscal problem as you're well aware and the same with the federal government the acknowledgement that the pandemic spending was necessary on many fronts I know for your first budget there was a risk of doing too little and in your second budget a risk of doing too much I appreciate your time I just saw one of your staffers send an email through saying that you have to run so we'll acknowledge that but we'll look forward to speaking <laughs> with you again in the future Okay, thank you very, very much, Patty. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate your time. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. As Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, Christian Freeland, and again, we squeezed as much time as we could get there, and there's so many other things we need to broach. We'll see if we can get other different ministers of different portfolios, and hopefully some more time with uh, Minister Freeland in the very near future. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Chris in the queue to talk about Wabush and a rally for the rec centre, now shuttered because of the lack of cooperation between Lab City and Wabush. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Chris, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, I spoke with you a month, uh, six weeks ago, concerning our rec center here in Wabush, okay. uh, which was closed. It's into its third month now. Uh, still no word from our council in Wabush. So we are planning a rally on Sunday, April the 10th, 3 p.m., in front of the rec center. So is it as fundamental as the fact that the town of Wabush needed some cooperation and some fin financial support from Lab City? They refused and consequently became unaffordable. Is it as fundamental as that, Chris? No, it is not. Well, uh, what else is Patty, I'm, I'm not an accountant, but I've been meeting with some people here in Wabush. We've been having some meetings to organize this rally. So we've been called all the organizations in our two communities to get everybody involved. And we've also seen some money uh, budget-wise. We have a healthy budget as far as I'm concerned. We could run that rec center. Money is put in different places. Now, I'm not an accountant, but you know what I mean? Like, if you look at stuff, and for a small town that we are, uh, and it's a must. It's at the hub of our communities. It's been 55-plus years it's been used, you know, and it's from babies to adults to seniors. Everybody uses the recreation center. Our slogan is going to be Open the Mark. The mark is uh, Mike Adam Recreation Center, which it was renamed in 2006 after Mike Adam, a great athlete from our town, won the um, gold medal at the Olympics with yep. Brad Guju. Mm -hmm. Okay? And it's been the hub of our community, and it just got locked, and nobody gives us any information. You know what I mean? And it's time. It has to open. We have, we have no other facility in our, our communities. We're two communities in the middle of nowhere, you can say. For example, our swim team, which used the rec center for years and years and years, has to go to Fermont now. Luckily, the town of Fermont is nice enough to let, nice enough to let us use the, their pool. But, you know, we need our own pool. We're in a northern sure. community with uh, 10 months of winter, you know, which... It's it's a must. So we're, I'm putting this out to the rest of the community now. We've we've let lots of people know. We've put it on Facebook. We've made flyers, uh, called organizations. So we just want everybody to be there, kids to adults, on Sunday at 3 p.m. in front of the rec center. I appreciate the time this morning. Good luck with it. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Chris. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. That's another call before the break. Let's go to line number one. Noah, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Morning to you. Yeah, I just heard our, our deputy prime minister on there talking about the the, the, the jobs uh, was uh, job creation and that, eh? Yeah. Lowest time down employment rate been in since I don't know how long, but anyway, five percent or something. Right. Does it make no wonder, boy? It's very disgraceful for she a big one on like that. You know what I mean? Because I tell you what, there's people working up in their eighties now. 
I heard a woman on there the other day there talking to the, pre, the prime minister. He said, well, he created a million jobs in the last three or four years. She said, yes. She said, and I'm working three of them million jobs that you created, she said, and I can't afford to pay my rent. I got a granddaughter now. She's a lab technician, and she uh, she just bought a house there in Deer Lake, and she, she's uh, got to work another job now, or two more jobs. She's got two kids, and she got to work. Uh, uh, she's a lab technician, but she still can't make it. she got to, she got to work another job or two in order for her to make ends meet. And this is the kind of stuff our government is going on with, you know. The the job creation is, is just because everybody got to work. I got people working up in their 80s, man. Can't afford to, can't afford to stop working. Already, already, already got to give up everything. You know what I mean? You got to leave your home, or you got to go in a hut somewhere. You know what I mean? In order for them to survive. You know what I mean? Well, that's why. That's why we also talked a lot in that conversation about inflation and cost of living issues. It's fine to have a job. It's another thing to be able to afford to pay the bills. The job creation numbers are real, uh, and in certain parts of the country, the economy is booming. And around here, maybe on the Avalon Peninsula, not so bad, but in other parts of the province, people are absolutely struggling. And some of those controls are all. Also provincial, but in the last few months, like in uh, in February, there was three hundred thirty-seven thousand jobs were added. And, 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 uh, and, uh, and I only heard there a few days ago that the, the new the, the young immigrants coming into Canada. I guess you heard it too. The new immigrants that have already come to Canada over the years. In the next year or two, it's 30 to 40 percent of them are going to leave because the cost of living is too much for them to stay here in Canada. Because I mean, they probably come from the Philippine Islands somewhere, you know, where the where the where the, where the, the pay is a dollar fifty hour, you know, in the Philippine Islands. I talked to a Filipino there a little while ago working with Telus. She's getting a dollar fifty hour working with the Telus Corporation in the Philippine Islands. He comes here and he gets fifteen dollars hour. That's ten times more than what he gets in the Philippine Islands. But still, the cost of living here in Canada can't keep up with the ten times more she's making here in Canada, so they got to go live and go back home again. You know what I mean? When they figure out what's yeah. going on here, you know well, what I mean? It's possible. I, mean, I would, don't know who's going to stay. Actually, more people are staying than leaving uh, more than ever before. Like, we've actually seen an increase in the population for the first time in the year, some 2,800 <coughs> people. That's not a lot, but it does look like more immigrants yeah. are staying. And just, just recently, Jerry Burns was talking about the population in Newfoundland increase, and about a month after that, they come out and they said, we've been lost $9,000 since 2018. 2018, we're lost 9,000 people. We lost 9,000 people and we gained 1,800. So how much is that? You know, that's still 7,500 people lost. You know what I mean? So what is he going on with? You know, if, if he brings in four or 500 people, that's an increase in population, but they already lost 10,000, you know, over them years. You know what I mean? So them 10,000 got to come in before we get the increase in population. You know what I mean? No. I, you can't, I, I you get can't just, you, all right, you can't all just right, bring in four, four right. or five people and replace 9,000 people with four or 500 people. You know what I mean? But those people are just doing this all political. Man, oh, man, oh, man. It's unbelievable. I get sick and tired watching it because I'm a politician myself. I was the mayor of a town, the president of Alliance, of a fire chief, manager of plants, and I'm all over Canada with a ridge shell uh, welder and the ridge shell feller working with the boiler makers all over Canada, buddy. And I tell you what, I'm paying my way along, and nobody helped me out. I tell you that, I'm 73 year old now, and nobody never helped me out, not the government. I pays all my ways. I got everything everything paid for when I worked uh, with the company. And I phoned the politician, and he said, you're lucky. I said, I'm not lucky at all, because I'm not a politician. Because the politicians, that's the lucky ones. 
grabbing and stealing and robbing from the poor people. You know what I mean? And then trying to trying to figure out uh, how, they, how they can get more money put in their own pocket and just give themselves 11% uh, raise now in Ottawa. All the politicians, they're all the same. Every damn one of them is the same thing and no difference in the... In the so what we got to do, the only, re, the only thing that's left for us to do now is we got to go to Iceland. In 2008, Iceland got rid of other politicians, every one of them. You got no, no political parties in Iceland as we speak today. They had them on the verge of bankruptcy in, 20, in 2008. They made a new charter of rights for the Iceland uh, people. And, and, and they got a president now that he votes in every, every four years. And the rest of the ones is run by the people. They got rid of all the political okay. parties. Because the political parties is, is, is the ones that's causing all the trouble. And they're all the same. The only time to get a vote is when they all vote for a raise. And they are voting for a raise, now 11% raise. All the, the constituency offices here in Newfoundland and Labrador is going to get a $4,500 raise this year. And me, an old-age pensioner, 72-year-old, because I'm 73, I'm not 75, I'm not going to get none. I got to be 75. Our our our, our liberal uh, government in Canada is not considered old age pensioner until you're 75. No, that's and only God about that. Somebody got to do something about it. You know what I mean? Appreciate it's, the call. Makes me mad, boy. Yeah, I, I can hear it, it. It pisses me off. Understood. I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call, uh, Noah. And I, I'm the kind of a fellow who's been through the ropes. You know what I mean? I know it's when okay. I'm talking okay. about. Okay. Point taken. Understood. I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Jennifer, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Is this Patty? It is Patty. Hi, Patty. Um, this is uh, Jennifer. I was just listening to uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, Christina Freeland. Okay, um, we were wondering, like uh, there's a bunch of us, how how do you manage to find out about this Canada housing crash? Is it for just the people that are already in the housing system or is it for low-income people? Yeah, it's a low-income. It's a mean te- uh, means test. Uh, so I think there's a little fluctuation province to province, but you have to be uh, – whatever province you're living in, you have to be working, earn a minimum of about $14,000, a maximum of about $38,000. And so Mm -hmm. it gets, I think it's around, well, it depends on your level of earning, between $300 and $475 per month. So this is a one-time increase of $500. Right. So that was the question I was going to ask you, what was it based on? But you answered my question. (laughs) Good. Anyways, um, how, how do you go about, like, how do you go about um, do you have to apply for this? You do, or? yeah. Okay. Do you have any information? It'll be right on the uh, Government of Canada's website. If So if you go to Canada.ca, for instance, then just go to the search bar and put in Canada Housing Benefit, it should bring you right to the application and eligibility page. Okay. Yep. Okay. That sounds great. No problem. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I basically want to find out with it for the people that are already in the housing and... Um, like you say, we're already minimum wage people, right? So we probably could qualify for this. 
I imagine you qualify no problem if you. It, but now, of course, it's a net income as reported to CRA family. Like the, it counts the folks who are living in that house. So, you know, you can apply as an individual. And I, I've never been through this particular thing, so it's all, right. you know. Anyway, I'd go to the eligibility page at uh, Canada.ca, and you'll be able to find the housing benefit eligibility criteria and application right there. Okay, what was that, Canada? Well, if you just go to your Google bar and say Government of Canada, for instance, you'll get the homepage. Okay. Yeah. All right, then. That's it, then. Thanks well, for your help. No problem, okay. Jennifer. All the Thank best. You. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number five. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. I know one thing. You're busy with a provincial and a federal budget dropping my, within a few hours of each other. My head is swimming. I can't imagine. I mean, I... Two o'clock that day when it came out here, I know you were directly facing eyes into that and right behind it, the federal one. And I guess now as a result of that, people having a chance to to look at this. And, of course, there will be an outpouring of, uh, I guess, opinion and things that they found within this document. So it's kind of the reason that I'm calling this morning. Uh, Looked at our provincial budget is what I'm primarily uh, alluding to now. The integration of basically what will happen now, the reduction of all school boards, English school district will now be, of course this is not news, it will be absorbed into the Department of Education. And then on that one, the other being the four health uh, care authorities being now merged into one. Well, especially on the the one that had to do with school boards, um, I had pre, in a previous life been involved in school busing from the late 50s, early 60s till most recent. I would have to say that probably there was a transition in that when the integration happened. First off, we used to have about probably, I think it was 14 separate school boards and whatever, and let's just say that that's probably too high a number. Things should have been reduced, and by so doing, I guess the amount of local control of things seems to to wane and get put by the wayside. Like in particular, when we had our board in Steamwell, uh, you had a local transportation manager and whatever the case may be for school busing, you could get problems faced dealt with and move on when you've seen the reduction in boards the first off then we've seen it down to like here we were under the western board and there were probably five or six left in the island at that time it got tougher to get things done you were placed on a priority list that probably dwindled somewhat because it was the bigger centers that had to be dealt with I guess that's understandable now With the school board issue, I guess, as most would say, that's kind of a done thing. Now it's going to go be brought back into government. So I don't know what they gain or what they don't 
where's the savings? I think it makes uh, a lot of sense. I don't, I've never really understood why there needs to be a standalone school district as opposed to simply operating the schools uh, from the Department of Education. I think there's an absolute savings to be had there which should be passed along to improve uh, what happens for students in particular in the schools. I'm not quite sure what the four regional health authorities becoming one really gets us unless they're going to identify some top-heavy management that are going to go by the wayside, improve efficiencies and uh, overlaps in HR and procurement and shipping and receiving and all the same things where you know it can be done better. Waste is a problem inside of healthcare, even though it's $3.6 billion and 38% of our budget, but I'm not sure how that's going to work. And the big question will be for many is, how centralized will the jobs be? Will we see a real amalgamation and a concentration in the metro region around the Avalon Peninsula? Because we know, we know full well you're still going to need some local representation in some of the more rural parts of the province and especially in Labrador. Most certainly, in most areas, you know, have suffered cutbacks and reductions over the past number of years, like here in our region. At one time, when we we used to have a clinic in every other community. Now, let's say that's not feasible anymore. So we centralized the community clinics, of which there are very few left. Now, Steamville Hospital comes in, in, into play. Under the Health Accord plan, it gets reduced from what it is to basically community hospital level one which drastic reduction in the services that will be available the ones that we've already lost that we've been fighting for and hoping to get back well we're down about 12 doctors in this region so now we fall under the priority of western health they're not too far from us and i'm i've just i've made a career of jumping on western health but to prioritize exactly why, I don't think there's a bad person, not one bad person working with Western Health. They wish they could do more than they can. And probably throughout the process over the years, this huge like $3.5 billion, and like you say, our outcomes and, and, and our utilization of that money has not been great. What happens from this point forward? I, I agree with you. Like, where are the savings, especially in light of them saying there's not going to be significant layoffs? It's only going to be somewhere the delivery of services is going to get taken away regionally. Well, are these other people working for home or whatever the case may be? I don't know what happens if you don't lay them off, if you're going to be doing these type of things and shutting them down. Where's the savings? What's it doing? And for us, if you're going to look at implementation now of the health accord, and the way that it's supposed to transition itself out, you can expect a lot of your, like, case in point in Steamwell today, they're overburdened, overrun with this COVID thing. And that's something else. I mean, if people think that this is not real, and it, it's here. And it's, it, uh, there's more of it here right now than I've ever seen. Sure. So I don't know if that gets better. I'm hoping. But we got a challenged hospital down there with seriously reduced staff and whatever the case may be. What about if this were Steamwell was to be downgraded to, a, and I'm saying downgraded to, to a, a regional, uh, sorry, not a regional, but to a, a community hospital, and we don't even have the level of services that we got now. Do we all pile on Cornerbrook? Probably. Yeah. I, I don't see where that makes sense. Imagine if you're living in Cornerbrook and all of a sudden your overcrowded waiting rooms are more overcrowded because Dave Bayman from 70 miles farther out, out, out the Newfoundland Way is now sitting in the same 
uh, the same waiting room as you and, and, and from every other community. I really don't see it being something that's presenting itself as a great move forward because this thing, you got to realize they're talking about reducing inpatient beds and services in Stephenville. The new hospital in Cornerbrook has fewer beds than the old one. So if we're going to cut them out in Stephenville, we're going to be having fewer to operate in Cornerbrook. I don't get it. I really don't know where it's a positive thing. I appreciate the time and the concern, Dave. Thanks for this. Hope you have a nice weekend. You as well, buddy. Take, take care. care. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, that's Elvis Lovelace. Of course, he's the MHA for Fortune Bay, Cape Lahoon. He's in the queue, and then it's you. Apparently, we have a quick question on uh, line number one before we get to the minister. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Yeah, Randy, uh, or Rand, sorry, uh, Patty, just yep. wondering what was in the budget last night uh, for uh, buying electric and hybrid cars. Uh, nothing in addition to the five-point plan that Minister Cody spoke about uh, last week. So what it is is $1.9 million for uh, infrastructure. There's a $2,500 rebate if you buy a, an all-electric vehicle. Now there's also a $1,500 rebate for the purchase of a plug-in hybrid vehicle, and that's all managed through Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. Okay. Yep. That's the only thing available. So, uh, all right, that, that, was, that was the question I had, and uh, thank you for the answer. You're doing a good job, and uh, keep up the good work. I, I appreciate it. So, yeah, it's 25 for all electric, 1500 for uh, plug-ins. And I actually happen to know the email address if you want for more information. It's just evrebate at NLH, which is Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. So evrebate at nlh.nl.ca. All right, thank you very much. You're welcome. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Let's go line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal member from Fortune Bay, Cape Lahoon. He's the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, Elvis Lovelace. Good morning, Minister Lovelace. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you and the UCM for the opportunity. And I know you've got your 11 o'clock break coming up, uh, and, and i got about five minutes, so I'll do the best that I can in the short period of time there. Um, but in referencing the 73-year-old man that was talking to you, his passion, and, I mean, you know, politicians are easy targets in terms of uh, going after politicians, but he also mentioned the constituency assistance and a raise for them. Patty, I'm going to tell you, I will always support uh, um, the, my CA as well, because and every CA in every district of this province, they work extremely hard and they deserve every dollar that they get, and uh, because they're on the they're on the front lines out there in the districts, and I'm sure every MHA would uh, would echo the same thoughts. But, well, Patty, I'm not calling this morning with uh, the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure hat on. Um, first and foremost, uh, you know, it's it's MHA for Fortune Bay, Cape Lahoon. But I'll certainly be giving you a call in in the uh, in the next week or so to talk about. Uh, uh, road work and, and infrastructure and challenges around that as well. But I, I, I wanted to call in this morning about the, you know, the concern about the temporary diversion of emergency services at the uh, uh, the hospital, the Conagra uh, Peninsula Healthcare Center in Harbor Breton, uh, and the the services being diverted to Grand Falls, Windsor. It's not the it's not the news anyone wanted uh, to hear, Patty, and and uh, because it brings many many challenges and stressful times for for people, but. Uh, but we have to deal with it. It's it's a challenge, and we have to deal with it. Uh, you know, and 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 I want to say up front, the government is not taking doctors out of rural areas of the province. Um, and 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 I'd like to make a point as well. 
Now, this, you know, diversion in terms of uh, services has been happening in the Beta Sphere Medical Clinic uh, in St. Albans for the past two years, and that has been extremely tough and stressful on residents. Um, and we've been working diligently with, uh, uh, you know, with the advocacy groups and uh, Central Health and Minister uh, Hagee as well um, to to find to, to find a resolution. And uh, you know, now unfortunately, it's happening in Harbour Breton, um, but it affects it affects all the area of the Coast of Bays region. It's not just, you know, services being diverted from one hospital to Grand Falls, Windsor. I mean, I have clinics in, we have clinics in Mose Ambrose, Ballorum, Hermitage, and we have the isolated communities in terms of healthcare services for them as well. But, um, you know, I want to say along with, with Minister Aggie and certainly the CEO of Central Health, who I have a good uh, rapport with, and the mayors, uh, all mayors, local groups, um, you know, we're doing all we can to, to recruit doctors. It's uh, and Patty, I think a good message, and I, I was in conversation with someone earlier this morning that said, we're not just recruiting a doctor. We're trying to attract a family to the area. And, and you know, it, it's, it's challenging, but, but we, we, we need everyone involved. Not, not, I believe, you know, not the time to point fingers. We need to, to support one another. And, you know, recruitment efforts are, are happening. And we need doctors down in Coast of A's area. We need five that need to complement the area. And, and, and it's for the area. And, that, uh, and I say that and I stress it. It's, it's not just for one part of the district. It's for the whole of Coast of A's. And, uh, and that's very important uh, to remember. So, it, you know, it, it's a challenge, Patty, that we're dealing with, excuse me, and we'll continue to, um, you know, to to do the best we can. I'm, I'm in daily conversations with with the CEO of Central Health as well. And, uh, and again, uh, you know, kudos to all those involved. And, and I, th- I thank Minister Hagee as well uh, um, and, and Central Health because we're, we're going to see the collaborative clinic initiative happening in the Coast of Bays area, and that's support for them. And I thank, you know, I thank the locals because there's a local advocacy group that worked hard on, on that idea, and, and I thank them for that hard work. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and all of that leads me, Patty, this is where I see, um, you know, the, the, the value of our nurse practitioners, our LPNs, our nurses, our, our paramedics, our EMRs. And, the, I mean, the list goes on. I believe the professionals, and I know uh, Mr. Hagee does and, and this government, that uh, the answer to good care in rural parts of the province is going to be in those professionals and uh, we need to support them and I will certainly uh, continue to advocate strongly for them to ensure that there's a uh, the supports is there for them and uh, and again I, I just say thank you to okay. to everyone Patty during uh, this difficult time uh, um, and, and not to forget either that the doctors and the medical staff in, in Grand Falls and, and Gander that uh, have these added pressures right now uh, on them because of the emergency services that are being diverted from other areas of the province, not just in the mm-hmm. Coast of Bays region, right? So, you, Support for nurse practitioners. We're going to have to maximize scope of practice for everyone working in healthcare. Do you also support going to a private uh, nurse practitioner's office and billing MCP versus cash out of pocket? Well, not necessarily support, supporting it, uh, Patty. I mean, uh, uh, if if that happens and someone chooses to go there, that's their personal decision to go there. I mean, what what we're interested in is is a public system that will support uh, uh, everyone. And 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 we know there there are many challenges. I mean, the 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 the, the private uh, setups uh, they will happen. And and if if people are there that can afford to do it, then I I can't say that they can't do it. Uh, it's it happens in other parts of 
of uh, uh, the country and stuff, and, it, and, and it's a reality, uh, but it comes down to the care. But I'm, I'm all about finding a, a good system that will support uh, everyone in, in, in this province. And, 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 uh, and not to say that is not a challenge. I mean, you know, there's, there's, as you alluded to, there's lots of money being spent on health care in this province, and we need to do things uh, different and uh, to be more efficient. But, uh, Patty, I know, I'm, I know you're going to soon go to a break. I just wanted to quickly, um, you know, send kudos out in terms of the Beta Nord project. Uh, uh, very important, and, and thank the Premier and certainly Minister Parsons and all involved that stood firm on this, and it's, uh, you know, it's positive for this problems. We need the good news. I got folks in my own district that I uh, uh, talk to on a daily basis in terms of them leaving the country to work in the oil industry, and, and they'd rather be home. I'd rather for them to be home, too, so we need to support the industry to bring them back to work in our jurisdiction, and more important, uh, home to their families, and if you allow me, I will conclude in terms of the, the budget 2022. Um, I believe uh, certainly a responsible, balanced budget, and kudos to Minister Cody on a, on a lot of groundwork that she did there. I know the opposition asks every day for us to spend, 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 uh, to accommodate uh, them, uh, and, and their ask would be irresponsible, and we know the, the financial burden that past PC administrations left on the Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. We won't, we won't be irresponsible. In fairness, in yep. record spending, $9.4 billion, borrowing $2.7 billion, balanced budget, furthest thing from. Now, striking a balance, I understand the complicated fashion that that presents to Minister Cody and her team at Treasury Board, but we are ta- still talking about record spending. And what we all need to know is this path and measurables from 2020 for 2026-27 and all of a sudden an $82 million surplus. We'd love to know how that is achieved because it's one thing to say it and hit economic targets, another thing to actually achieve it. So that's the next conversation I'm looking forward to having with the Minister, and I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Minister. Absolutely. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That's the Liberal member for Fortune Bay, Cape Lahoon, the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Let's go ahead and take a break uh, for the newscast. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? When we come back, we're speaking with you. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, of course... With limited time, with anybody, including, say, for instance, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance, Christopher Freeland, I know full well we're not going to be able to cover all the topics that you'd like to see broached. We'll make every effort. A lot of people send an email and say, you know, what about this, what about that? Fair questions. And we'll try to get to them. The easiest part, you know, for the day after the budget... I know full well that she's on tour. She's doing a variety of media hits right across the country. So it might be easier for me to take some of those topics and get to the minister responsible specifically, you know, next week when we have a little bit more time to get them on the phone and hopefully keep them as long as we possibly can. We were told it was six minutes. We got more than that out of her, which we were pleased to, but there's lots of issues that we'll continue to chase on your behalf. Let's go to line number one. Diane, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you this morning? Not too bad, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, I have an issue. My family doctor is leaving the province. Yep. And I went to the clinic yesterday to inquire about my medical records. I was told that they were going to be kept in the building in case that a family doctor, a new one, would come in, which is understandable and acceptable. That's fine. If not, they would be shipped out and I would have to pay to get them back. So they're not going to give you like two weeks grace that if a new doctor does not show up, you can simply go get your records yourself and keep them? Nope. 
And I was told if I wanted to get a new doctor or if I got a new family doctor, they would ship my files or transfer them, which is another acceptable. But other than that, no, they would be shipped off and then I would have to pay to get them. There's something just broken in that system. I know, for instance, they send along a report to MCP about the billable hours. Of course they do, because that's how they get paid. But if we already have a process where they are in constant contact with MCP, just simply based on how many times you've seen them and the billable hours, at the point where the doctor retires or moves or whatever, we simply should send it right through uh, MCP. And so all you have to do is pay like a $20, $25 fee from MCP, because there is some clerical work and copying that needs to be done, and or we digitize these things to just make it easy for the individual to have access to it. This business about sending it up to an Ontario company, DocuDavid is the one that's most common, and having to pay a pretty hefty sum to get your records returned to you, records about you, records about your health, records about your treatments. It just seems like we're creating a business where there needn't be one. No, and I was told it would be roughly around $140 to get the records, yep. my records, and I have three of us in the family, so that's times three, and it could take anywhere up to two months, three months to get them. It's. I don't understand why it is the way it is. Uh, we're going to go through the college and see if they can give us a better understanding because we're just middlemanning something here for the sake of a profit for an independent contractor or a private sector business when I'm not so sure that's even necessary and why it's being done. I don't know what the relationship is between individual doctors and this document protection company, but there's more to it than meets the eye. So we've actually had this conversation a couple of times this week, and I'm trying to find out why it is the way it is and why we can't do better by people like yourself because to pay for those records at that sum is completely unnecessary i agree yeah so let you stay tuned to the show because we're going to try to figure it out with the representative from the college thank you very much i appreciate your time diane you have a good day you too bye-bye thank you bye-bye Okay, let's keep rolling. Line number two, Annette, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. I'll only speak for a second. Um, I'm calling about um, the uh, letters that were sent out to the uh, cyber attack victims. Mm -hmm. And I'm calling for my friend. She didn't want to call in. She's a senior citizen. Anyway, Patty, on Wednesday, she received two separate letters from Eastern Health saying that she was a victim of the cyber attack. So that left her with, she nearly went into cardiac arrest (laughs) with two letters. And then on the next day, she received three more separate letters in separate envelopes from um, Eastern Health on Topsail Road uh, saying the same thing. Now, they were on about budgets, talking about, you know, money and savings and everything. And I, I'm just calling, maybe somebody from Eastern Health is on a coffee break or something. If they check out their lists and see who's doing what, because five letters to the one person, there's five lots of mail that you got to pay for. Uh, and, you know, there's probably 3,000 or more people. So if everyone gets that many letters, it's going to cost an awful lot. Absolutely. It might be <laughs> the same person because I haven't. I got an email this morning with the exact same thing. They got five letters that said the exact same thing. So absolutely. Yeah. And it adds up. You know, you might think, well, you know, the postage and the uh, the paper and the copying and the envelope, it only costs so much. But if you have that times 10,000, which is every bit of that, given the fact that these compromised records, 200,000 of them go all the way back to 1996. Yeah. If everyone gets two, three, or five, that comes with an enormous waste of cost. Yeah, and not only that, she nearly went into cardiac arrest when she got the second three. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm laughing because it is laughable because, I mean, and not only that, like the letters are signed by a person with a PhD. Now, either that 
you know, I mean, I don't know. But I, we just thought we'd bring it up to the public just to let everybody know. But it's, it's the same letter, so it's not like, you know other things were looked into or whatever but th- th- this is the whole thing the, the names are the same the same letter the same things to do five letters in two days yeah it's not the first i've heard of it today and you know it might i don't know what the cost tally would be for how much additional money was unfortunately and unnecessarily spent yeah but it's just a classic example of you know, it's not their money. So the attention to detail and to make sure that yeah. you're spending as little as possible to communicate with folks, if yeah. that was a private sector company, someone would be held, held to account here. We'd be like, yeah. what are we doing? How much, yeah. why did we waste that money? But in government, it just seems like if you added up every nickel that was wasted in every department throughout the course yeah. of a day, week, month, and year, I bet you the savings would be mind-blowing. Oh, yes. And, and, and not only that, like it lets everybody see that there's either lack of supervision or lack of uh, uh, lack of leadership, lack of everything. You know, I mean, if a teacher did that in a classroom, she'd be called to task about it, sending the same letter to one little student five times. Let's face it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if it was in this building, let's say we were communicating with our advertisers and the advertisers yes. called back and said, hey, uh, I appreciate the letter, but you sent me five of them. Well, someone yeah. in this building's in trouble. Yes, exactly. Anyway, Patty, thanks for your time and you're doing a great job, I got to say. I appreciate that and I appreciate your call. Thanks for this. Thank Annette. you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, okay, you know, these, these might be small examples, but there's endless small examples. We know it to be true. You know full well that the amount of waste would add up to massive monies. Again, it's quite easy to see how some of things happen, some of these things happen because it doesn't mean we have bad people that are operating government services. But when it's not the corporate money, when it's not their money, when it doesn't impact their next budget request to uh, sent into by the Minister of Finance's Office or Treasury Board. That's where we see these things happen. And there's also clear examples of when it comes to the end of the year, then there's uh, an issue where uh, departments will make sure they spend everything in their budget so that they don't see a decrease in their budget the year after. So all of these little examples is really where I think there's just an unfortunate, unnecessary, and unacceptable amount of waste that goes on. Uh, Someone says uh, the cost of paper and stamps. Yeah, that's what we said. The cost of the envelope, the cost of the paper, the cost of the stamp. Yeah, that's right. Uh, John also says, let your listeners know there's a code on the letter. Advise them to check the code. They could be different. That's important. Uh, But the content of the letter, like someone sent me five different pictures. It was the exact same letter five times. So that's uh, probably a very helpful point by John. There might be a different code, so it might be a different issue. So do that if you receive multiple letters. Appreciate John sending that note along. Let's take a break. When we come back, still plenty of time left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Come back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Linda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Ah, oh, not too bad, Patty. I have an issue with Service Canada. I'm wondering if I can discuss it. I'm a little bit nervous. Never been on the radio before. <laughs> well, you take your time. You sound great. Go right ahead. Oh, thank you. Uh, Patty, I'll give you a brief history so it can, it can be a little bit clear. Uh, I'm, I'm a part-time home care worker here in Marystown. Mm-hmm. I work 30 hours a week with the same lady now almost six years. Well, actually six years. So in January of this year, January 16th to be exact, I filed a part-time EI claim. Because if there's breaks in your employment in the last 52 weeks, you're allowed to open up a part-time claim. Right. Okay. 
So anyway, uh, a couple of weeks after I had filed the part-time claim, an agent from Service Canada called me and asked me some questions, and they asked me, was I available for full-time work? And I misunderstood, I think, completely, but I, I took it as I should be out pounding the pavement every day looking for work. And I said, no, I said, I'm working 30 hours with this lady. I can't leave her and go looking for different jobs. But looking back in hindsight now, I think if I'd have said, yes, you know, any work available, I'll take. I think that was the answer they were looking for. To make a long story short, I was just into it for the claim, which I totally get. If you're not available for 40 hours, you're not available, so you can't try EI part-time. Right. So they, they told me, and I, and I totally get that, because, I mean, you know, you can't, you don't just use EI as a bank account. You know, you had to be available at all times to work. So they told me I had 30 days to appeal their decision, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to bother. I'll just try to find some extra hours to make up 40 hours. I'm not going to go through this appeal service. You know, I'm going to let it go. I didn't do any reports. I didn't appeal. I just let it go. So when they told me I was disentitled, I totally assumed that meant the claim was gone. Over. No more, right? So move ahead to a month later. On February 19, I went to town with my family for the weekend, and I had a skating accident and broke three bones in my wrist and my arm. I fell and broke the wrist and the arm. So that was the 19th. So on the 21st, I phoned them back, and I said, uh, I need to start a sick claim, an official sick claim now, right? Because I was going to need surgery, and it was going to be a long haul, and I knew I was down for six weeks, possibly longer. And uh, they said, we can't do a sick claim for you and I said why not and they said we need to convert your regular claim over to a sick and I said but I am confused I thought this claim was disentitled to me that meant no more it's not there they said no no it's disentitled all that means is you're not getting any payment but uh, your claim has to go on and I said but I'm not even doing reports how can the claim go on and they said you have to draw out that claim and I said but I need that. I said, okay, for argument's sake, if I do have to draw it out, I need it converted to sick. I've had an accident. I broke my arm. I need surgery. I will not be going back to work for six weeks. Can you switch it over to sick? So they said they'll start the process and try to get everything going. And I had to bring in the note from my surgeon, obviously. You had to have everything on the up and up. And I brought in the notes from the surgeon, and they told me what times I could do the report. So I was going along like this from the 20th of of uh, sorry, the 21st of February off to about a month ago. And then I went to do a report and I keep calling in to check to see if the sick claim has been turned over or approved or whatnot. And I call in and uh, said, your report is rejected. So I got this agent on the line. As you can imagine, in the last six weeks, I've talked to many. And she said, you're rejected because you don't have a sick claim. And I said, you've got me confused. I thought, that was being converted from a regular to a six. She said, no, that's what's taking so long. Because you were disentitled, now we have to try to figure out how to switch over a disentitled claim to a sick claim. Bottom line, Patty, it'll be seven weeks Saturday since I broke my arm. It'll be four weeks Wednesday. It's four weeks Wednesday past since I had my surgery. Two more weeks to go before I can even think about getting cleared for work, and I've received nothing. And now they tell me yesterday... The reason that my claim is taking so long is COVID started two years ago under backlog. That doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> if you only knew, Patty, like I said, only for the, the grace of a beautiful family I have and support of friends, you know, helping me in a bond here, like, you know, helping me with my car insurance. I have a car payment. Like, I, And I even said to one lady, and most of them, except for two, I usually remember all their names, most of them except for two Asians were very friendly. And I know it's not 
the girl at the desk to make the decision. You know, it has to go above her. Our adjudicator has to get it. But most of them have been very polite, very friendly, very sympathetic. But I said to a couple, I said, you know, I have car payments. I have rent. I need to put oil in my tank, which I haven't done since I broke my arm. And, you know, oil is not cheap. Like, I need an income. And they said, well, I can't help you. It's got to go to a supervisor, sis. And then this last guy yesterday, this is what he said to me. He says, uh, well, we're backlogged since COVID. And I said, that's two years ago. I would imagine those claims have gone through now. I said, I, all I want is my sick EI, what I am owed. Hopefully on the 21st when I go to St. Clair's and see my surgeon, she's going to let me go back to work. Right now, my, I'm in the physical situation where I can bend my hand, but I can't bend my arm. And it's my right hand. It's my dominant hand. So, like, to feed myself, at the risk of sounding dramatic, to feed myself, I'm almost like a stroke victim. I can't, I can't turn my arm. I can't, like, to start the car, I can't turn the keys. I have to turn it with my left hand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I understand range of motion injuries. That's unfortunately yes, so. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and, and it's almost like a frozen arm. Like I said, I can bend the wrist, but I, can, I bend the hand, so I can't bend the arm. So, now, you take in line, I'm looking out to an 87-year-old woman who's not altogether keen probably about me being able to work with her when my arm won't work. So I might have no choice for another, I could be out for another month. I don't know, hopefully not. Hopefully they'll tell me, you know, go on back to work light duty because it's not a, there's no lot of heavy lifting in the job other than groceries and stuff. But my my frustration now, Patty, is I'm heading into uh, my last paycheck from work was February 4th. That's two months ago. I have not drawn a cent of income since. I have my local MHA working on it. He's been quite helpful. The young man that's been helping me, he's beyond helpful because he's also been to a situation like this one time and, you know, waited a long time. And I know they have an appeal. But the reason they tell me it's taking so long, because even though I was disentitled from the first one that I never ever appealed, I had to appeal the sick one. And on the 16th of March, I made an appeal to get my sick claim come true. And they're telling me it can take up to... Uh, March, uh, sorry, April 14th, if they decide to give me my sick EI, it might be done by then. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you have a member of the House of Assembly staff working on it? A local uh, pro- a no. provincial politician? Uh, well, uh, yes, in, Mary, in the Marystown area, our local member, his office is, has called several, a service candidate several times to try to get an answer. Yeah, and you, what you really need is someone who's in the federal business. So, uh, I've, thankfully, uh, one of the representatives, I believe, of uh, uh, CPC member Clifford Small's office just sent me a note saying uh, to give you his number because the federal folks know their way around the system a little bit better, I think, than the provincial representatives. So I'm going to give you a number okay. to call, and maybe that'll get you some accelerated help. Okay, one second, Nick. Patty, I just got to grab a pen. Okay. So it's, uh, of course, it's a provincial number, 709. 709, yeah. 256. 256. 3130. 3130. And this is a member of the government, you think? Yeah, this is a federal MP's office. Uh, Ask for Ryan when you call. Federal MP's office. Yep. Okay. Yeah, because, right. you know, sometimes it's good enough to get our MHAs working on our behalf, absolutely. But on the federal programs and the understanding that federal uh, executive assistance would have or constituency assistance and or MPs, they might be a, a, an additional layer of support. So give that number a call and see if you get any luck or any satisfaction. Okay, Patty, thank you very much. You've been very helpful to me. I hope it does give you some help, and I wish you well in your recovery. Thank you. You're welcome, Linda. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, yeah, that's helpful. You know, every now and then, boy, it's just 
and I know it's difficult dealing with government, especially things that through Service Canada, EI, and otherwise. But I do appreciate when uh, folks who are listening at a member's office, whether it be a provincial politician's office uh, or a federal member of parliament, when they reach out, you know, it does give me a little bit of hope that there are good folks, and especially those who are the, the non-elected officials. They've got a very distinct role. It does make their member look good. It makes them look good. It's the effort we require from people who are working for us. So bravo. Really appreciate that. Ryan sending me along a note. And it happens fairly often on a bunch of issues. So hopefully Linda gets the help she needs and the money flowing ASAP. So about a half hour left in the program. It might be a great day to get on the show. Obviously, with the amount of information flowing from the provincial budget and the federal budget, and even if it's not a budget-related matter, and you want to share a little bit of good news. You can do it right after this newscast. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue 273-5211 or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's try line number one. John, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Paddy. How are you? Doing okay, thank you. How about you? Oh, hanging in. Paddy, I'd I like to just bring to the attention of people the, how we're getting ripped off with the banks, and particularly the credit cards. Okay. Um, I recently had, had an opportunity to uh, access one of my credit cards online to the sum of $1, which I did. And... Uh, I got my bank statement this past month, and I looked at it, and here's the one dollar charge taken out, which was okay, and they charged me five dollars for doing it. Say that again. It was a one dollar fee that they charged you five dollars for. <laughs> that yes, what said? that's right. Um, we are nickeled and dimed to death dealing with the banks you know and just look at their numbers their uh, profits in the last uh, few years during the pandemic while well, they said they were doing us a few favors by deferring our mortgages and stuff but because of compound interest adjustment that i paid them more at the end of the day the extraordinary profit associated with the unbelievable nickel and dime fees is frustrating as all get out i uh, <coughs> excuse me i inquired about it you know yep and uh, they said well because it was a cash like I, I, it wasn't a purchase from a like I say a purchase, but it was a cash. Oh, there's a, there's always a fee for a cash uh, withdrawal or a cash advance from a credit card. Yep. Yeah, but for one dollar, you know, to charge you five dollars is a bit much. Yeah, on that world, it's just an unfortunate standard fee for a cash advance on a credit card. Like, for instance, when I went to pay my taxes, and I've tried this year over years, I've tried to do the math with, if I pay my taxes on my credit card, which is constitutes a cash advance, how much is my fee compared to how much I'll get, say, for WestJet miles or something or other, and it never works out. <laughs> the credit card's got you where they want you. I know, it's ridiculous. You know, it's about time somebody or the government stepped in and, and stopped all this. You know, when 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 a senior got to got to spend five dollars 
in order to give one dollar of his own money. <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. It, you know, and just think about it. It wasn't that long ago that I believe the federal government gave MasterCard some $75 million to set up shop to do one function or another in some city. of I think it was probably Toronto. So... I don't get it. Subsidies for businesses like that just make absolutely zero sense to me. Same thing if we're given a subsidy to a large national grocery chain to put in some eco-friendly freezers and stuff. Let's stop doing these things. What are we talking about? Companies that have these extraordinary profits, they can carry their own mail. They can carry their own water. They certainly should be able to. Especially the banks, when, like you said, every quarter, every quarter in the last 10 years, they've they've had record profits. Yeah, and I mean, that's something that the government does have some control over. I mean, it's a regulated industry. So remember back when the late Jim Flaherty, he used to talk about these things. He'd talk about bank fees and some controls. And, you know, there was some talk about three-point additional tax pressure on banks and insurance companies with profits over, uh, a, was it a million dollars? Over over a billion dollars a year. But, of course, they're just going to pass that along to us. So there are things that the governments can do to put some breaks and some controls on these companies. Absolutely. Yeah, well, hopefully they get at it. Hopefully so. Anyways, have a good day, Patty. The very same to you, John. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number two. John, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I got John speaker. Is that all right? It's easier for me and the listener if you take if you take us off speaker, if that's okay. Okay, Patty. Okay, Patty. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm a first-time caller. I'm calling from Fog One. I was in the gander yesterday into the hospital. Now, i got to give out a, a, to the wonderful people you've ever met in your life, them nurses and doctors in there. They treated me like royalty. That's good. You know, they treated me like royalty. My God, what what they got to go through and everything else, you know. They're wonderful people. I don't know why anybody say anything against them. They're, wonder, they're, they're the very best. I think the concerns, now, of course, if someone gets poor bedside manner treatment, that'll be one thing. I think the biggest complaint people have is whether it be the distance they travel or the time they have to wait for a procedure or a diagnostic imaging or something. But when you get into the system, generally speaking, the professionals that you deal with are top quality. They're empathetic and compassionate and understand what, you know, the worries that you're going through. So you're right. Once you get in the system, there's good people. 100%. Oh, they're the best, the very best, very best. I was there four hours. I got a little bit of trouble with my prostate, you know, and that's not for the privacy stuff going on there, but boy, don't bother him, you know, just same as she told me. She said, we lost 35 of those every day. Good women, good girls, good women, good doctors, yeah. And so what's the prognosis? How you doing? Oh, boy, I had it done, only had it done yesterday, Patty. Now they got to go to a lab, right? Yep, okay. And then that's another three or four weeks before he finds out. You know, they're looking for cancer, see, Patty? But at my old age now, Patty, no odds about me. I'm 78, almost 78 year old, boy. There's still lots of odds about you. Of course there is, John. We hope that the the results are negative, meaning that you're cancer-free and that you'll live to a ripe old age beyond 78, absolutely. Yes, but I was telling the boys there last night, you know, I'd be disappointed if I never got 100, you know. <laughs> I don't see 100 in my future, but uh, I guess <laughs> time will tell. What you do all your life, John? Well, I, I was a fisherman, and then I had my own company, carpenter work, you know, renovating and stuff like that. Yeah. I contracted in St. John's for 12 years. Okay. 
Yeah, so I know all about that. Well, actually, I'm, I'm from town, but I married a girl from Fogelwalden here, right? Lucky. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go pushing this now, Patty. Uh, okay, I'll leave it there. <laughs> you have a nice day, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. You, John. I wish you the very best. Okay, thank you, Patty. You're welcome. All right, all right bye-bye. bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, I know that's not what John was getting at, but, you know, it's some of the pushback that I, I consistently get, and it's from the same few people, by and large, talking about uh, COVID numbers and deaths and the like, and there will be an update on the uh, government's COVID hub uh, in and around lunchtime again today. And, you know, I'll never understand when someone tries to tell me, well, the people who are dying are old. Yeah, so what? You know, if you got the virus at the age of 80 and yes there's going to be uh, underlying health conditions that we're always going to be concerned with and that's the reality of life regarding what we're seeing with the numbers but i wish people would stop with well you know they're old and i'm i'm young and healthy with a robust immune system but the first thing you give it to might not be and i'm not in the mood to make anyone fearful about this stuff as you know as frequent listeners or regular listeners to the show it's just a bit of mindfulness that's you know still part of it i think uh will i take joel before we get to the break yeah why not let's go we're going to throw around a bouquet why not on this sunny friday line number one joel you're on the air Hello, sir. I'd just like to uh, follow up your last caller. Uh, a little bit of background information. I was diagnosed with MS last March. It took uh, over a year for that to happen. COVID delays, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I'm meant to get MRIs on a regular basis, and I went in yesterday for the first one in a long time, and I was over the highway, and I had to wait, and I was uh, short with those ladies and rude, and uh, i just like to throw out a bouquet to them because they are definitely professionals. They did a great job, and uh, there was no reason for me to be short with them. They are uh, the cream of the crop for sure, and after having dealt with them the last year or so, uh, you definitely see that. Yeah, uh, look, I understand when people, because there's an amount of fear and worry that goes with a diagnosis, MS or otherwise. And that's good on you for acknowledging uh, what happened yesterday. And for the healthcare professionals that hear that a lot and day over day, while they're stressed out, overworked and underappreciated, I'm sure they do all they can to acknowledge or understand where people are coming from, even if they do get carried away and a bit rude. So uh, good on you for doing it. And how's the, uh, how are you doing with your MS over a year after diagnosis? diagnosis ah oh, everyday pain well that's just from uh abusing my body when i was younger as well uh but things are looking up i live a normal life treatments uh way better than you'd ever expect these days so uh you know i approach every day with a regular routine and uh, do yoga and breathing and take care of myself and uh pretty much a normal life well, I'm glad to hear that, Joel. One of my good friends here in the building actually has MS as well and seems to be managing reasonably well, which I'm always happy to see when I run into him. Uh, good to have you on the show this morning, Joel. I wish you well. Thanks so much. You too. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. A couple of bouquets that are back-to-back. It's good for what ails you. Let's go and take our final break of the morning, the final break of the week. When we come back, I look forward to speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Timothy, you're on the air. Oh, I think I had to get off speaker, so there we go. Uh, oh, thanks for uh, thanks for the time today, Patty. I know it's the end of the week, and that's so I appreciate it. Um, no I was listening in to the lady that had uh, problems with her EI, going back and forth from sick to regular benefits and things like that. I think uh, anybody who's been dealing with that in the last, well, since COVID, as she said, can relate to it. Um, I had a situation where I was terminated without cause from my position there last fall, and it took 11 weeks I think to get my first 
uh, check and then they put me on hold again for some kind of clerical mistake or something like that and I didn't get my second payment until New Year. I think it was uh, into January. And it was the same thing, we're backlogged, we're backlogged, we're backlogged. Um, and I, I, you know, everything she said was exactly what the experience I went through. But I, the idea that I had, and I proposed to him, and I, I can't believe it wasn't even thought of, the purpose of that agency is to, you know, help us uh, stopgap, right, between employment. It's not there to pay us, you know, a wage or whatever, or income permanently, but, you know, you're in a situation. If they're backlogged and they're short-staffed, they have the largest database in the country of unemployed people. There's got to be people that can help them and be employed by them for short term or whatever to help clear that backlog. And I don't understand why it couldn't have been brought forward or attempted. I think they did add to uh, the staffing levels at Service Canada and CRA to try to deal with what was an enormous rush of millions of Canadians looking for any pandemic supports, whether it be EI or sickness benefits or CERB or whatever. But... You know, it's one thing to devise a plan and roll it out quickly to benefit Canadians. It's quite another to be prepared for it. Because an 11-week wait and what Linda's going through is simply not good enough. It does acknowledge the realities of life that you and Linda and others are facing. So I get it. They tried their best. But when you just create a firestorm and create a backlog that's entirely predictable, you got to be prepared to deal with it. Absolutely. You know, and then the whole... The whole thing behind it, I don't know if you're familiar, maybe you're some of your callers. I don't listen every day, honestly. I'm on my lunch break. <laughs> That's the only time I get to tune in. But, uh, you know, it was uh, the onus of following up on these uh, holds or whatever they're doing for processing is on the applicant. Um, they don't take any initiative whatsoever. So, uh, basically, I had, I think the first one is 21 days, and then it moves to escalation, and then it's five days, two days, and then every day. Um, there's an escalation to the adjudicator or that department. But if you don't, as, as a as a, uh, an applicant, if you don't call and request that escalation after your five days or 21 days, it sits there with no action whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that's not communicated very well. And I don't understand, like, how it can't be automatically just done, you know? Like, it, it takes off. I, I was on hold for two hours every three or four days and then every day two hours of my evening waiting to get through just to tell them oh, I'd like to I'd like to escalate this to the next level um, and eventually one of the people said look it's not doing anything we're backlogged and your escalation is that not actually escalating anything um, it's an incredible level of frustration and putting all that on the applicants is just I don't understand why they, they don't just automatically escalate it when it doesn't get resolved Fair enough. I don't know why that would be either, but I guess once if the onus was on them, then they'd just be setting themselves up as well. So maybe there's some self-protection in place versus put the onus on the applicant. But, you know, to understand that this has real-life implications is the real trick here. Not that it's uh, people have made these applications. They didn't do it for fun. They didn't do it for their health. They did it because they needed the money. So, Timothy, it's a, a flawed system. But when we deal with the behemoth, the unwieldy behemoth that is the federal government, there's reasons why it's as difficult as it is. I can imagine, yeah. Well, thanks so much. I mean, you know, I think we're all on the same page with that. I just want to add that to it and say that, you know, we're not. she's not alone out there, and we're all, a lot of us have gone through it, and uh, the frustration is shared, and hopefully we can find a solution soon. Yeah, hopefully the person I put around to is able to uh, fast-track or expedite the process this time around. Yes, that'd be wonderful. You know, that's, that's one thing I think a lot of people don't uh, don't understand about our MPs and our MHAs is how they can actually help the common man or common person, I suppose, um, you know, by, by calling in and, and with these issues, right? A lot of us don't. I mean, I didn't know about it uh, until I heard it. I was like, yeah, you know, like, I've never called an MP. 
or an MHA for anything I was dealing with, and it's probably a great solution. Yeah, put them to work. I mean, especially their assistants. So, and that's the trick here, dealing with the right level of government for the right issue and getting someone who understands the processes, knows the numbers to call, knows the uh, the hairs to pull. So uh, hopefully uh, she gets the help she needs, just like everyone else who calls looking for a little poke in the right direction. Hopefully we're able to help when we possibly can. Absolutely. You're doing, you're doing great work with that, too, getting us in touch with them. Uh, Patty, I've seen you help a lot of people over the years and listen to it. So thank you guys and VOCM very much for that. Happy to do it. Appreciate your time. Have a nice weekend, Timothy. You too, my buddy. All right, See you later. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go. Line number two. Florence, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Patty. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions. My sister one just called one to know if there's a guaranteed supplement for 500 or, or when it's coming out. Uh, I told her that single people, people get 200 that that I've received, and she wanted to know if there, would her and her husband get a separate 200 or is it... Just that way, you know. For families, it's up to 500, right? For families, up to five, yeah. Right. I, I That's my understanding. I'm told that all of those monies will be up by the week of April 21st. Oh, or April 18th. Is this? Wait, no. It's, why she, am I thinking 21st? She said it would be out sometime in April, but I thought it was only just that $200 supplement. But So I didn't know about the other supplement coming out in, at that time. That. Yeah, I'm, I'm told those monies, those one-time payments, are up by the week of April 18th. Okay. Uh, also, uh, I really like to know when uh, uh, I'm a senior about dental work. I could use that so much. It's not. When when would I be available for seniors to get that done? Next year is for children under 12. The following year it's for 18 and under and seniors. Was that two years from now? Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Take good care. You too. Alrighty. Bye bye. All right, we're out of time. Let's get a bit of Toto going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you for supporting the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, and tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.